Well, one of the most challenging and popular objections to the exclusivity of the gospel is the so-called existence of good people. Good people. Because the gospel itself tells us that all people, all people, must repent and turn away from their sins and believe on Jesus Christ and they will be saved from eternal judgment. Now, when hardened criminals accept Jesus Christ and they turn to Him and they ask for forgiveness, we all say, Amen! Because we understand that hardened criminals, they need to be saved because they are worthy of punishment. They're worthy of death. But what about the good person next door? Does he need saving? Because here's the objection, and this is what they'll say to you, and they'll say this to me as well. Well, I work hard. I'm a good husband. I love my kids. I even give to the poor. I don't speed. I pay my taxes. I don't hurt people. I don't swear. I'm kind to everybody. Why do I need saving? Why do I need Jesus? After all, we have acquaintances, I'm sure, you and, my, you and me as well, acquaintances and friends and coworkers who are very nice and kind people. By all standards, outwardly, they're good people. And by contrast, I hear people say this the same way that some of the most mean-spirited people and self-righteous people are churchgoers. And given the choice between the self-righteous churchgoer and the kind and generous agnostic, well, I'll take the kind and generous agnostic. But this is, this is reasoning that is fundamentally flawed for many reasons. First of all, because you don't know a person's whole history, nor do you know their future. See, we make value judgments based on people, but we don't know the whole story. We don't know where they've been. Oh, seems like a really great guy. Well, you don't know about that person's past. Or so-and-so is a wonderful person. I can vouch for their character. You don't know what they're going to do. So we don't know history. We don't know the future. And I'm sure Adolf Hitler was a very nice guy when he was very young. He was probably a very nice teenager. We often make these kind of judgments in complete ignorance of another person. But the bigger problem than this, with this good person concept, is that we don't see what God sees. We don't have his eyes. And we don't understand the true nature and weight of sin. If we did, if we really understood sin, and I'll tell you, the closer you get to the Lord, the closer you draw to him in holiness, the more you realize, as Paul says, wretched man that I am. The more righteous you become, you don't become more sure of yourself. You become more tentative because you understand your depravity but then you also understand the grace of God, which gives you greater affections for the Lord. But if we really understood sin the way that God does, then we would abandon the belief in the basic goodness of all people. After all, Jesus himself told the rich young ruler, no one is good except God alone. That, that young man had a very warped perception. Oh, I'm a good person. I try. I do everything I'm supposed to do. Jesus says, you don't even know what good is. Why do you call me good? As if you know. However, it is virtually impossible to convince people who do not believe they are sinners that they are. How do you tell a person who believes that they are not sinful, you are sinful? Then it just becomes a battle of the wits back and forth. And yet, that is a large part of Jesus' ministry, is telling people what their condition really is. And in Matthew 15, we encounter one of Jesus' most sobering teaches, te teachings on the origin and nature 
of sinfulness. And so if you haven't already turned there with me, uh, go to Matthew 15. We were there last week. Matthew 15. Now, the events of Matthew 15 take place sometime after the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water. Jesus and his disciples, they're ministering in the northern region of Israel near Capernaum, and they're visited by a delegation of leaders from Jerusalem. And when they arrive, they proceed to attack Jesus' ministry through the disciples, claiming that they are in grave sin. And if you were to just kind of get a running start here, we're going to just read the verses we looked at last week. Chapter 15, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever I have that would be helped by you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father and mother, and by this you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition." You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So what Jesus does here, and we saw this last week, what Jesus does is expose the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and demonstrate to all people around them that they are, in fact, not closer to God. Because of their traditions, they're actually farther away. The traditions have become a barrier between them and God. And then starting in verse 10, which is where we're going to pick it up this morning, verse 10, Jesus really begins to unpack the insidious origin of impurity, hypocrisy, and self-made religion. Started in verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, But what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Now, Jesus, again, is attacking, or excuse me, the Pharisees are attacking Jesus' disciples, and by doing so, they're really attacking him, or they're trying to at least, because they're trying to prove that he has committed some kind of egregious sin by leading them to transgress the the tradition of the elders. But his sharp reply here effectively convicts them of their own sinfulness in transgressing the law of God. And so after going to war with them, he turns the attention back to the crowds. Back to the crowds. So now he's addressing all the people that are standing around watching. Look at verse 10 again. 
After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Now, we presume at this point that the crowds are standing around. We don't know how many people are around, but judging by the crowd he just left, it's probably at least a couple hundred people, if not more. But the crowds are all standing around, and they're stepping, they've stepped back a little ways. And as soon as the Pharisees and scribes show up, the crowds are going to back off a little bit and let them kind of have at Jesus because they don't want to get in the way of the Pharisees at this point. You don't do that in Israel. These are the, the most elite of the elite in terms of religion. So they have let the two, these two groups go at each other. Jesus has just won them over completely and, and uh, disparaged them because they're transgressing the law of God. But now he draws the crowd closer. He says, I want you to come, come listen to me for a second here. Don't listen to them. Listen to me. So he brings them to himself because he wants them to understand a very basic principle. And that principle comes in verse 11 again. Listen to this, beloved. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Now, to understand the shocking nature of this teaching, we have to remember back to the purification laws of Leviticus. Those of you who have read Leviticus know that basically Leviticus is just a series of laws. Now, when you're reading Leviticus from just a cold reading, it's a little bit challenging. Most people, when they get into their Bible reading plans for the year, they usually drop off in Leviticus, and by Deuteronomy, they're having a really hard time. So Leviticus is challenging because it's just law, 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 law. And you read these laws, and we understand that we're not, a, that we're not under those laws anymore, so you're thinking, why, why is this applicable? Well, these laws demonstrate the nature of sin, the nature of God's holiness as well, the mandate for righteousness. It demonstrates a lot about the character and nature of God. But God had given Israel an elaborate system of laws and ordinances in order to teach them about very simple things here. The defilement of sin and the costly expense of purification. If you really boil all of Leviticus, all the Levitical law down to one basic idea, it's to show them how wretched sin is and how expensive salvation or I should say uh, propitiation and atonement is. It's a very costly thing. Now, they're not even thinking about Jesus. They don't even know who Jesus is at that point. But they're just understanding the nature of, I have to go and kill something to atone for when I do the wrong thing. It's costly. It's grotesque. It is difficult. That was the whole point, is to teach them this. Because here's the thing. How do you explain the concept of sin, sin, to people who don't understand what it is, and even enter into our culture today? You say the word sin, and they, they kind of have a general sense of the jargon of sin. Oh, yeah, it's a bad thing. But they don't really understand. This culture has no idea what sin really is and how egregious sin is. And so how do you describe sin to a person? It's not just making a mistake. It's not just your little oopsies. I heard a pastor one time preaching and said, oh, these are our little boggles. I'm like, it's not a boggle. It's defilement, my friend. It's wretched. Sin, if you were to describe it, is like dirt and filth. If, if, sin, to describe it, is like refuse and excrement. Sin is like sickness and disgust. This is how the Bible portrays sinfulness. And the only way to remove sin is to cleanse it, to purify it, to sanctify it, to purge it. You have to get rid of it somehow. Beyond this, God 
teaches Israel that there are really three spiritual states for them to be in with regards to purification. And if you've read Leviticus, you'll see this very clearly. Three states, there was unclean, clean, and holy. Everything was either unclean, clean, or holy. Sin and infirmity brought you from holy to unholy, from clean to unclean. So when you defile yourself, you move from holy to clean to unclean. You're moving down the ladder, if you will. And however, there was a way to perform acts of purification and cleansing, which could then lead to holiness, to be set apart and consecrated to God. Ultimately, this was the work of sacrifice. Again, God is teaching Israel. He's teaching Israel spiritual realities, spiritual realities through tangible, physical things. Because how do you explain heavenly concepts? When Jesus gets to, by this point in Israel's history, how does he explain spiritual concepts? Parables, metaphors, and even the parables they can't understand. So the Lord is teaching deep spiritual truth through very common, tangible, simple things. For example, in Leviticus chapter 11, God tells the people of Israel that they are only permitted to eat certain kinds of animals that are deemed to be clean. Now, some examples would be they could eat cows, they could eat fish, they could eat certain kinds of birds, locusts and grasshoppers, they could eat those kinds of things. However, they were forbidden from eating animals that were deemed to be unclean. For example, they couldn't eat camels and rabbits and vultures and pigs. I don't want to eat a vulture, I don't know about you, but pigs are good. Anyway... Now, if you violated any one of these food laws, then you had to bring the appropriate sacrifice to the temple and follow all the precepts necessary to be made clean. And then you could be pronounced by the priest as clean. The Lord tells him in Leviticus 11.43, Do not render yourselves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with them, so that you become unclean. Again, clean and unclean. Then he says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Remember, unclean, clean, and holy. So the Israelites had spent their entire lives, generation after generation, being taught that what you ate and what you did and what you touched, all those things would either render you clean or unclean, holy or unholy. But again, to remind us all that all the Levitical laws existed to teach Israel about sin, sacrifice, and the need for a Savior. That was the whole purpose. Well, how do we know that? Because in Hebrews 8.5, we understand that the purpose of all these things in the law was to serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. 1,500 years of all of this sacrificial law Levitical law, and by the time of Hebrews, we read, you know what? All that didn't actually accomplish anything. All of this was teaching us, this is a copy and a shadow of things to come. Hebrews 9.23, it was necessary, he says, for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, it was never about earthly Objects, clean and unclean. It was never about animal sacrifice. Rather, it has always been about sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from the very real defilement of sin. 
This is ultimately all to point to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And this is why he tells the crowd in verse 11, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man. He would have said that. They were, they're thinking to themselves, what are you talking about? That's the most elementary thing about all of our purification laws. That we can't eat certain kinds of things. We can't touch certain kinds of things. So for Jesus to say, it is not what you put in your mouth that defiles you, that blows their mind. You can't do that. But then he adds, it is what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. The word here, defile, is koinoi, and literally it means to make common. But here in the context, it's referring to profaning or making unclean. But Jesus tells them it's not about the food that you put in your mouth. That doesn't make you unclean. It's really not. Rather, you are defiled by what comes out of your mouth. And as you can imagine, this would have caused a tremendous stir. Look at verse 12. And the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended by the statement that they heard from you just now? Do you, do you know that? They were, they're really mad at you, Jesus. They're really offended. This word in the Greek is skandalizo. It means to, to ensnare or cause someone to stumble. This wasn't simply Jesus ruffling their feathers a little bit. No, he's, he's wounding them. He's causing them great stumbling. They, they couldn't get over this. What are you talking about? How dare you say these things? And let me tell you, they weren't going to forget it very quickly. They're building a case against him, and they're going to keep on building it for the next year until the cross. But how does Jesus respond to all this? Because the disciples, as you can imagine, are probably really bothered by this. Jesus, Rabbi, the Pharisees are really angry. I mean, we're trying to have a good ministry here, right? We're trying to reach all of Israel and redeem them and save them and lead them. And you can't do that if you get the Pharisees mad at you. The Pharisees are angry with you, Lord. But how does he respond? Look at verse 13. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. And he says this, Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man leads or guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. He employs the use of two metaphors here, plants and blind men. Again, deep spiritual truth through very simple things. That's how our Lord teaches. Simple, simple things to express very complex and magisterial truth. But here, he, he makes it very simple for them. Both of these analogies, they really point to two realities regarding the enemies of God here. First, he says in verse 13, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Very simple. If God didn't plant it, it's going to get uprooted. That's really the, the, the essence of the statement. That's as far as it goes. But there's more behind this statement. Israel was seen in Scripture as a plant which had been planted by God. That was a metaphor, a, a symbol that was used it was a repeated metaphor over and over again. Just a couple examples. Isaiah 60, 21, God calls Israel the branch of my planting, the work of my hands. Isaiah 61, 3, they were to be called oaks of righteousness. Oaks, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Or even Isaiah 5 tells a parable 
Let me sing now for my beloved. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around and removed its stones and planted it with a choicest vine, and he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. Isaiah goes on to quote the Lord, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. You see where this is going here. The Lord does this hard work of planting this plant, the choicest vine. He's a careful caretaker of this precious plant. He plants it and expects it to blossom and produce good fruit. And then he comes back after sending all of his servants to go and check on the vineyard. And all of the the workers in the vineyard do nothing but destroy these workers that are sent, including his own son. He comes back and sees that all there is is rotten fruit on the ground. Does this sound like another parable we heard from the Lord Jesus Christ recently? It certainly does. Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. God had planted Israel to be a luxurious vine, but over time they produced only bad fruit. And Jesus promises that at the end of the age, He will cut down all that is dead and useless and throw it into the fire. See, the disciples, they're worried about the Pharisees. They're worried about the religious leaders of Israel. But Jesus essentially tells them that they're not a good crop. This is not a good crop. This is not a fruitful crop vineyard here. They're nothing but horticultural pests. That's all they are. And when God's judgment comes, every plant which my Heavenly Father did not plant is going to be ripped out of the ground, uprooted. So don't worry, he's saying. God will deal with them. God will uproot what he doesn't plant. He's perfectly able. And then he goes further in verse 14. He says, let them alone. Let them alone. In other words, don't worry about them. Don't stress about this. This is not a big deal. Now, to their minds, they're thinking, what? But Jesus says, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, they'll both fall into a pit. Several times in the Gospels, we see the Lord refer to the spiritual leaders of Israel as blind guides. One of the key examples is Matthew 23, verse 16. He tells the Pharisees, woe to you, blind guides. He repeats the same thing in verse 24. Woe to you, blind guides. The idea is the worst person to lead a blind man is another blind man. That's axiomatic. That's self-evident, isn't it? And yet, that's what he says in Luke 6.39. A blind man cannot lead a blind man, can he? Otherwise, they'll both fall into a pit. And so, he's essentially saying, don't worry about the Pharisees and the scribes. Don't worry about the influence of spiritually blind guides. They're all going to eventually fall into a pit. We get so worried about it. We see religious leaders, we see political leaders, we see influential leaders who are blind. And we get so worried about it. And the Lord is saying, don't worry about them. I will uproot them and I'll let them fall into a pit. And there'll be no more. Again, these are people who believe that Eating with ceremonially unclean hands is going to allow demons to come into your soul and defile you. That's what they were worried about. About these little dirt demons on their hands. That's literally what they were worried about. 
But Jesus says it's utter blindness. It's blindness. And yet the disciples are still struggling to get this. They're really struggling with this. Look at verse 15 and 16. Verse 15, oh Peter, our friend Peter. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Now Peter is speaking on behalf of the rest of them. You know this, right? And I I have to think sometimes that the rest of them kind of goad Peter into it. Peter, ask him. I don't want to ask him. He's always yelling at me, right? But Peter does. He asks and says, Lord, please explain this to us. And Jesus, he says, are you still lacking? You don't understand, really? They've been with him for two years at this point. This is the Passover before the final Passover a year from now when Jesus goes to the cross. So they've been with him for two whole years. And he says, you really don't understand? You don't get it? They couldn't grasp this idea that unclean items couldn't, could defile them spiritually. What, what do you mean? The Lord told us that there are unclean things that we can't touch, we can't eat. And you're saying, it doesn't matter? Lord, please explain this to us. Please explain this. Now, he would have explained this countless times, but he explains it again. He helps them out again. Look at verses 17 and 18. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Now, verse 17 is basic biology, even in Jesus' day. He tells them that everything that goes into the mouth passes through the stomach. That's where it's digested, regardless of what it is. So whether you're eating a, a clean thing or an unclean thing, it doesn't really matter in terms of your biology. Everything you eat will be digested. So again, it doesn't matter. And then all of that matter, whatever is in your stomach, he says all that will be eventually eliminated. And literally in the Greek, eliminated is uh, literally to the latrine or to the waste, okay? So the idea is everything that goes in your mouth, food, drink, everything is going to end up in through your body and it's going to end up ultimately in the exact same place. This is basic biology. It's all the same. There's no difference. And at this point, it's very interesting, Mark 7, 19, so a a parallel passage, Mark 7 adds this note, thus he declared all foods clean. Now Matthew doesn't record this statement, but Mark has to explain it to a non-Jewish audience because the Jews understood what he was doing. He's pronouncing everything to be clean. And that's what he's doing. Many people believe that the Lord doesn't pronounce anything clean until Acts chapter 10, when Peter receives the vision of the sheet coming down on all the animals, and he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Everybody thinks that that's the point when he pronounces everything clean. It's not in Acts 10. It's way back here. Jesus says it doesn't matter what goes into your body and comes out the other side. This is a full year before he goes to the cross. And the question is, well, why does this matter? Why is this such a big deal? Because Jesus is making the point that it is not the things that are outside of you that make the difference. That's not what comes outside that defiles you. Rather, verse 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. And so he's teaching a very dynamic truth here, something that is a paradigm shift to their thinking. In other words, we defile ourselves with the sins 
that are produced from within our own hearts. It is the sins of the heart that defile us. Well, how do you know what is taking place within the heart? Because remember, we said earlier, we meet lots of people and we sort of judge them to be good people. I've known my neighbor for five years and he's a good guy. I've never seen him do anything wrong. He's got a great family. He's got good kids. He and his wife are nice to each other. He works hard at his job. He's a good guy. How do you know? How do you really know? How do you know what is taking place inside the heart? Well, the mouth will speak of it. Jesus spoke this way to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 34. He says to the Pharisees, You brood of vipers! Don't you love the way he talks to these religious leaders? You den of snakes! How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For from the mouth speaks out, uh, out of that which fills the heart. God cares infinitely more about what exists inside of your heart and what comes outside of your mouth. And you always hear people say this, well, don't judge me because God knows my heart. Ever heard that before? You can't judge me. God, God knows my heart. Friends, that's a terrifying thought. I know God knows your heart. That should make you tremble with fear. I don't want anybody looking inside my heart. I don't want you all to see what's really going on inside the depths of my heart. And I would suspect you don't want me to know what's going on inside your hearts. Why? Well, because we know that inside of our hearts, the things that take place unfiltered, because everything that happens in our heart doesn't always come out the mouth, does it? You don't always say what you're thinking and feeling. There are things that are inside your mind and in your heart that if you were to say them out loud, you'd be shunned forever. Same thing goes for me. But Jesus speaks to this. Look at verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Jesus here enumerates a, a whole list of sins that sound very similar to the deeds of the heart, or the deeds of the flesh, I should say, listed in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. But notice that he says that all of these things, all of these things proceed from within the heart. The heart is what produces all of these sins. Just to kind of go through them very quickly, evil thoughts. Paneras dialogismos. Paneras means bad or evil or wicked or even worthless. Any thought that is evil or wicked or hateful or disgusting or useless or worthless or debauched or even repulsive. Ever had a thought that enters into your mind and you're going, what is that? Where did that come from? I don't even think that way. You'll have a dream at night and you'll dream of something awful, grotesque, or terrible. And you wake up and you're like, where did that come from? I don't entertain those kinds of thoughts. That's, that's vile. Any thought that comes inside of your mind. Romans 1.30 says that fallen humanity, we're inventors of evil. Ever watch the news and you hear a news story and something terrible that gets done and you're like, who thinks to do that? Some egregious crime and you're like, 
Who sits, who sits up at night and thinks about how to do such a terrible thing? Who, what kind of person does that? We are inventors of evil. We as people invent new ways to be wicked. And the argument is, and because I, I hear this all the time, well, yeah, you know, you hear about the real terrible thing, but then the person will say, well, just because I think it doesn't mean I'm going to do it. That, my friends, is the mercy of God. It is a sheer mercy and kindness of God that we do not entertain and unleash the evil that is within us. Because if we were to cast off all restraint and indulge indulge our flesh, we could, if we were left to our own devices, commit absolute atrocity. We could do it. It is within the capacity of each and every one of us. And you'll notice that when the government stops punishing evil, and when the family stops teaching morality, and when the conscience becomes seared and defiled, people begin to do more and more wicked things. And the news cycle right now is full of the most detestable, egregious, awful, wicked things. I watch, and I catch myself, I'll see a video in a news feed about something terrible that happens publicly, someone catch it on a cell phone, and I'll watch for a second, and I have to turn it off. I don't, even want, I don't want to watch this terrible thing. And I think, who does, these, are, these are demons. People who are under demonic influence doing other thing, things to people. And it's just terrible. And I know you know what I'm talking about. But it's a kindness of God, beloved. It is God's mercy and God's grace and God's restraint that He keeps me from doing the things that my heart produces. But even if you don't act on your evil thoughts, even if they only ever go as far as your eyeballs and they stop, Jesus says in Matthew 5 that even your sinful thoughts and hatred toward other people renders you guilty before God. What about murders? He goes even further. I would even direct your mind to Matthew 5.21. Jesus says, You've heard it said, the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And you say, Well, that's a given, Lord. Of course murderers are liable to the court. And then you say, But I'm not a murderer, so good for me. Verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, raka, empty-headed, knucklehead, anybody who even insults his brother, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Oh, I don't like that. I don't want to hear that, Lord. That's too much. So he says, even if you've never hurt anybody or killed anybody, that's the argument, right? I've never killed anybody. Even if your thoughts are wicked against somebody else, God renders that to be of the same caliber, the same nature of sin. Not the same degree, certainly. The consequences will be different. But in God's eyes, it is the same sin. Adulteries and fornications. Now generally to define terms, we understand that fornication is any kind of sexual sin where adultery is sexual sin that is committed outside the marriage covenant. So different contexts, same idea. 
And the world says this, you can look, just don't touch. We hear that all the time. I can look, it's all right. But Jesus says, in Matthew 5, 27, every man who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her. What does he say? In his heart. So Jesus says, you cannot look and lust because you have already committed adultery. Again, there are different consequences when you actually step outside of that covenant and commit a, a sin that way physically. But in terms of my standing before God, I can't plead ign- uh, uh, innocence here. I can't say, oh Lord, well at least I didn't step out on my wife. But he says, if you've looked with lust ever, then you have. You have. You're guilty. And I'll tell you, the present day pornography industry has created a world full of billions of fornicators and adulterers. What about thefts and false witness? Stealing, lying, deceitfulness. Now obviously, stealing is a sin. That's the Eighth Commandment. But what about the Tenth Commandment? Coveting. Coveting other people's things is nothing more than theft that takes place within the heart. It's the same sin in God's eyes. Just because you didn't take it doesn't mean that you didn't want to take it. Because what's the difference here? When you're, say you're at at your office and you're cleaning up your desk for the day and you grab something that someone else let you borrow and you put it in your pocket and walk home for the day, is that stealing? Well, I guess technically it would be, but does your heart intend for that to steal? Well, no. So as soon as you realize, you go, oh my goodness, I, you take it. You, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to take that. That was an accident. That's very different than seeing something that doesn't belong to you and lusting after that and coveting after that. I want that. Your heart has already taken it, whether or not it's ended up in your pocket. And God sees that. God sees the guilt of that. And we do it all the time. In fact, modern day advertising is built on the principle of coveting. That's what we do. We say, look, don't you want this? Everybody goes, oh, yes, I do. False witness, lying, or lack of truthfulness. Again, there are no little white lies with God. No such thing. God hates all lying and all deceit. All of it. So even if you are just a little bit dishonest, well, I didn't tell the whole truth. I didn't technically lie, but in your heart you're trying to deceive and withhold information because you know it will incriminate you because you did do the wrong thing. Don't you think God sees that? We think we play a game with God. Oh, He he won't know. Really? He sees what goes on inside your heart, beloved. He knows every evil thought. Any possible thing you could do inside your heart, he sees all of it. What about slanders? The Greek word here is blasphemia. Now certainly blaspheming refers to blaspheming the name of God, which violates the third commandment, but it also pertains to more than just that. In the context here, this has to do with gossip and slander of other people. And beloved, I'm convinced that bitterness, resentment, Gossip and slander are some of the most dangerous sins that we commit. Why? Because they oftentimes will slide under the radar and they're easily dismissible. 
And we rationalize these kinds of things. And we'll say things like, well, yes, I know I said these terrible things about somebody else, but I, it's because I want them to pray for them. We, we, we hide our sinfulness under the guise of prayer. I'm not talking about sharing a prayer request that's earnest. I'm talking about spelling out somebody's garbage and then saying at the end of, of, blas- or, excuse me, of gossiping against them and slandering them, so if you think of it, pray for them. You think God knows what you're doing? You think God sees what's, what's going on inside your heart when you do that? I'm not the only person who thinks this way about these kinds of sins. In his book, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges defines gossip as the spreading of unfavorable information about someone else, even if that information is true. Even if it's true. Slander, on the other hand, he says, is making a false statement or misrepresentation about another person that defames or damages that person's reputation. Why do we do this? Ever think about that? Why do we gossip and why do we slander other people? Well, Bridges argues that we do this as a way to gain advantage over other people. It's a way of elevating ourselves over other people. After all, if you paint other people to be sinners and slanderers and all these terrible things that you want them to be, it becomes all the more easy to set yourself up as the exemplary model. Well, I don't do those things. I'm not like that tax collector. No, I actually obey the law. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. I'm pretty good. That guy's terrible. Let me tell you all about that guy. We do this because we're prideful. That's the root of it. Whether it's boastful pride, saying I'm so great, or wounded pride, you should think I'm greater than you do. Both of those are wrong. And yet we do it. And to God, it's all the same thing. God knows when we're slandering. He knows when we're gossiping. And I'll tell you, this wounds and ensnares so many of us. I would even argue all of us. I know very few Christians who are good at not slandering other people and gossiping. It is so hard. It's an insidious sin. It is wicked. But yet it incriminates us. And Jesus says in verse 20, it's the sins of the heart. These are the things, Jesus says, which defile the man. This is what does it, folks. Or James 1.15 says, When lust of the heart has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It is not outside things that get us. It is the inside. <coughs> Excuse me. Or as Jesus instructs the crowd, to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. We are not measured and judged by outside factors. It's not the clothes on your body. It's not the food that you eat or the drink. It's not the ritual. It's not the the musical preferences or the hairstyle or religious practices. It's not any of those things. And we... I know that we're not superstitious. There have been cultures in history that have been really superstitious. Generally speaking, because of the Enlightenment, we're very, we're, we have a very low tolerance for superstition and mysticism. But I'll tell you, we still do that. Oh, I'm not touching that. 
I don't want to go there. That's, that's where all the bad people go. As if we're going to be defiled by being around another person. The Scripture says, Proverbs 4, that we are to watch over our own hearts with diligence. Why? Because from it flows the springs of life. It's your heart, beloved. It's your heart that you have to be careful about. Fifty-five times in the Gospels, Jesus speaks about the matters of the heart. Over and over again. Guard yourself, he says. Guard yourself from the sins of the heart. Now, Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, so then what do we do? Here's what we do. You throw yourself at the mercy of God. If you know that you've never been forgiven by God, and if you're listening to this sermon today, and you've never confessed Christ as Savior and Lord, if you've never confessed your sins to Him and asked Him to forgive you, don't wait. Do it now. Examine your own heart and see that there are sins in your heart that God has not forgiven yet, and you're not right with Him, and confess, Lord, I have sinned against you. Lord, I, I offer myself to other people as a good person. I think I'm pretty good, but when I really look deep down, I'm not good. Forgive me. Save me. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, who gave himself as an offering for your sins on the cross, if you put your trust in him, he gives you a new heart. It's called regeneration. He gives you a brand new heart. And he redeems you. He saves you. And now you belong to him. And this new heart, even though it's not perfect, is being perfected until you see him one day in glory. And so if you don't know Christ, turn from your sins and trust in Him. But beloved, those who do know Christ, if you do know Him, and many of you do, then ask Him to purify you and expose the sins of the heart. I'll tell you, there are so many sins. There are the indwelling sins and the besetting sins, the obvious things. We all have those. The things that stick out like a sore thumb. The, things, the sins that all of us can see pretty clearly. Oh yeah, I know this guy. I, I really like him, but boy, he's got an issue with X, Y, Z. The, the obvious things? Well, sure. You want to work through those things. But once you get through those, I'll tell you, there's a whole nest of villainy in your own heart that is so subtle and underneath the skin. My heart is filled with sins that need to be mortified. And I would imagine that yours is as well. Those are the things that we have to deal with. That's why we have to work hard at sanctification, at least in terms of our participation in sanctification. To weed out the things that are the most obvious. To live a life of godliness. So that the Lord can deal with the things that are underneath. I want all my sins to be dealt with. And so your meditation ought to be this in Psalm 139, 23, 24 where David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Beloved, work hard to fight these wicked sins, the sins of the heart, but you can't do it alone. The Lord goes before you. The Lord forgives you. And it's by the power of the Spirit that you can do any kind of battle at all. So ask Him for help. After all, the Lord declares, 
Blessed are the pure in heart. Again, which is only given by God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that is our hope, isn't it? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we lift up ourselves to you. We offer ourselves to you. And Lord, these verses, they they cut to the very core of who we are. And so many times, Lord, we want to come to you and pretend that we're better than we really are. We think we can fool you. We think that somehow, if we can fool other people, we can fool you as well. As if you don't see what's really going on inside of our hearts. And so, Lord, please have mercy on us as your people. And Lord, I pray that even now, especially in the life of our church here, with with these people, your beloved, your saints, that you would engage in a season of chastening. And Lord, that's, I'm asking you, Lord, and I know that's hard. I know that you're going to bring trials to do this. You're going to expose fault. But Lord, you demand a pure church. And so Lord, I ask that you would purify your bride. Cleanse us and sanctify us. And Lord, your word promises and tells us that you begin not only with the house of God, but you begin with those who ought to be examples to the flock. That's elders, that's leaders. So Lord, I pray that this text would have its its sanctifying power and convict us rightly. That when we sin in our hearts, we would confess them immediately to you, Lord, and work hard and be diligent not to do these things, not to manifest greed and slander and gossip and covetousness and adulterous thoughts and murderous thoughts and wickedness, Lord, that we would purify our minds and baptize our minds in Your truth and devote ourselves so that we might be a people that is growing in godliness, sanctified and consecrated and set apart for You, Lord. Oh, Father, we will not be perfect in this life. We know this. But let our greatest desire on this earth to be godly and to give You all praise and glory. Have mercy, Lord, and help us. Search us, O God, and know us. And lead us in Your everlasting way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.